I'm John Hendler, and this is Everyday People Extraordinary Lives. My guest for this episode is Jim Butler, violin player and violin teacher. Jim has been teaching the Suzuki method in the Marshall and Battle Creek areas for more than 40 years. And last month in Battle Creek, he was honored by current and former students at a play-in, a recital of sorts, and a reunion where they played songs from the Suzuki method books and also celebrated Jim's 85th birthday. I caught up with Jim a couple of weeks ago to talk about his teaching career, his playing career, and his love of music. For your birthday and seeing all the students show up, I mean, that was kind of fun. I mean... No, it was good. It was, the vibrations were very good, and it was just, it was really neat to see people that I hadn't seen for 20 years, and some of the students hadn't seen each other for 20 years, and so... And the turnout was really fantastic, so it was really good. But, you know, one thing I was thinking about, John, was a lot of people don't know what I did before I came to Battle Creek. Right, and you were you grew up in the South, right, or no? no. Right, yeah, well, yes. I lived part of my life in Texas and Louisiana, but uh, back in the 60s, between 66 and 69, I played in the San Antonio Symphony. And the reason I went to San Antonio was John Corleano had just retired from as concertmaster of the New York Philharmonic for 23 years, and he was 65, but he didn't want to stop playing. So a few of us went down to San Antonio to be with John. And John, John had played under some really amazing conductors. Like uh, he was very close to Bernstein, but he also played under Toscanini and Metropolis and Bruno Walter. And it was just his master classes were really. He didn't teach any of us privately, but his master classes were really quite inspiring. And to show you how dedicated a violinist he was, he said the way he could tell that his wife was cooking dinner was his violin went flat because he was in the other room practicing. <laughs> and, and so uh, he, John was, uh, it was just really inspiring to work with John. So did he know you, when, I'm sorry, did he mm -hmm. know you were going to find him in San Antonio or did you just kind of show up and surprise him? No, I just, <laughs> basically, I was playing a North Carolina symphony and this was when the seasons were shorter than they are now. And so some of the San Antonio Symphony people, when their season was over on April 1st, they went and played in the North Carolina Symphony. And one of the players was the personnel manager of San Antonio. And I was principal second uh, in North Carolina and the personnel manager and a friend of mine asked me if I would be interested in coming to San Antonio. And of course the drawing card was the fact that Coriana was going to be there. Can we go further back than that? When you first started playing violin, did you fall in love with it? Oh yes. Uh, I, um, uh, I started, I was very old when I started, I was eight, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, uh, started playing violin in a violin class and, uh, it was a violin class that was not part of the school system, but they, the classes were held at the school before school started in the morning, like the violin classes were 
from 8 to 8.45 or something like that. And uh, there were about 8 or 10 in the class. But by the end of the year, where there were two or three of us left. I was in the third grade. And then that summer, I started studying privately with this teacher. And then uh, my dad was an Episcopal minister. So we moved from Bryan, Texas to Sweetwater, Texas. And that's when I studied uh, in Abilene with a very good teacher. And my dad, I didn't appreciate what my dad did, but he devoted his Saturdays to taking me to violin lessons in Abilene. And the way my, my dad was a Episcopal minister, so the way they paid for lessons, because it meant a lot to my mother, she sold magazine subscriptions. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, I was at a prep school in Dallas, Texas uh, for three years, eighth through the 10th grades. And the prep school was very good, but because I was in a dorm, I didn't have a lot of time to practice because things were very supervised. So I finally, for my junior year, came home so I'd have time to practice. And uh, I studied with someone at a college nearby. Uh, And the rest is history. Although you did say in an interview a few years ago with me that you did like the trombone as well. Yeah, I know. I forgot. <laughs> I told you that. I saw that in the article. And yeah, when we were living in Bryan, Texas, even though Bryan was small and is close to Texas A&M, there were there was a, a community orchestra like there is here in Battle Creek, and uh, so uh, we went to orchestra concerts a lot. And I couldn't decide whether I wanted to play violin or trombone. But then when this teacher showed up and was going to teach violin classes, and my dad knew this person in Lions Club, and it's amazing I kept playing the violin because my first violin was something that my dad and I got in a catalog at Montgomery Ward, and it was all of $17. (laughs) It would have been probably $50 now. Yeah. But it wasn't a very good violin. But it was good enough. (laughs) It was good enough, yes. And then later on, when I was in college, Mm -hmm. I studied for two years at Southeastern, which is a small college in Hammond, Louisiana. I played in the Baton Rouge Symphony at the same time my teacher was concertmaster of the Baton Rouge Symphony. So we would drive over together for rehearsals and that kind of thing. And then I joined the Navy, and I played in the Naval Academy band and orchestra. I played flute in the band and violin in the orchestra. And I studied part-time at Peabody Conservatory, which is in Baltimore. And then after I got out of the Navy, uh, I uh, went to New York to study at Manus College for a couple of years. And while I was in the Navy... I had met Mary, my wife. She was a Swarthmore and a close friend of mine in the Naval Academy band. Uh, Fiance was Mary's roommate at Swarthmore. So that's how Mary and I met. So when I was studying in New York in the early 60s, Mary was working on her master's at Winterthur, which she, she got a fellowship, and she got her master's in decorative arts. So, um... 
when you were younger, I mean, um, even maybe before the, 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 when you were in New York, what were your dreams? Did you dream of being some big uh, violinist on the world stage, or what, what, what were your well, dreams? Well, I, I was thinking if I could uh, do chamber music, that would be the ideal. Mm-hmm. And my violin teacher in New York, Isidore Cohen, was in the Juilliard Quartet at one point, and then later on he was in the Beaux-Arts Trio. And uh, Cohen was very generous with his time. Uh, many times he would give, before I went back to Manus, he would give me hour and a half lessons and he would charge $15 because he was very sympathetic to my situation because he had been in the service before he went to Juilliard to study with Colombian. And uh, so I thought if I could play in a good string quartet or something like that, that would be ideal. So when when did you and Mary get married? What year? Mary and I got married in uh, 64. And Mary had a really good job, her first job out of school. She was executive secretary of the Commission for Architectural Preservation which meant in Baltimore, in the Mount Vernon area, they not only had to get the approval of the building inspectors, but also the Commission for Historical and Architectural Preservation. So it would fit in the style of, it was in the Mount Vernon area, which is a downtown area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was studying at Peabody on full scholarship at that point. And after uh, we left Baltimore, that's when I, Played in North Carolina Symphony, and then I went on to San Antonio. I was going to say, did you move around a lot, or pretty much from Baltimore? Oh yeah, to San well, yeah. I was. I played North Carolina, and then I played uh, San Antonio, and then I decided I needed to do some more studying. Uh, so I went back to New York after I played in San Antonio for three years, mm-hmm. and uh, that's when I studied with Isidore Cohen. We lived. In New York, we were actually living in Staten Island. Uh, we were there for five years. And Mary, uh, when I was freelancing and went back to school, was a booking coordinator for outreach at Lincoln Center. And she'd done a lot of children's concerts administration when we were in San Antonio. When I left New York, I got a job as playing in a string quartet in uh Arkansas. It was a grant, and we played quartet concerts all over the state of Arkansas. How how do you find out about the quartet, or how did you get into the that's quartet? A, that's a good question. There are actually ads in there. There's a union paper, and there's the uh, something called the American Symphony Orchestra League, which publishes openings in different orchestras and that's and that's how i found out about battle creek and that's the way i found out about the arkansas symphony Mm -hmm. basically when i auditioned for arkansas uh the conductor came to new york and uh he was auditioning players and uh as soon as i auditioned uh it was usually auditions don't work this way but after the audition he said, do you really want to come to Arkansas? Because you have a job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was very nice. It was nice to be able to walk out of an audition 
and say, somebody say you have a job, rather than we'll let you know. <laughs> right. I'm sure over the years you might have gotten that, we'll let you know, and then they never did. Yes, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes I, they didn't always let me know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, Orchestra I auditions these days are very interesting because everybody's trying to be very impartial, not only for sex, but race. Right. So a lot of auditions for uh, national auditions for orchestras, you're playing behind a screen. And so they don't know whether you're male or female or white or black or what. In fact, there's a great story about the gal that's playing concert mistress, although they say concert master now, of the Detroit Symphony, because a lot of orchestras for the finals, they get to see what you look like. But in Detroit, they don't. And so when this gal showed up after they uh, told this person that they, this person had gotten a job, she walked from behind the screen and the adjudicators looked at the other and said, oh, I guess we didn't do too bad. <laughs> because she was nice, nice looking besides being a good ah, violinist. I see. Um, I, you've probably performed hundreds, if not thousands, of concerts over the, your career. And, oh, yeah. But any yeah. memorable moments in, a, in performing, whether it was the crowd or a fellow musician or yourself or a conductor, any anything that stands out is like, oh, the most well, memorable? Well, actually, one thing I was, I was thinking about, one thing that we did with the operas in San Antonio, and for, uh, it, you know, San Antonio, uh, I would say Dallas Symphony is much better than San Antonio, although San Antonio this past year had a lot of financial problems where they reorganized. But the fact that they did four operas in two weekends is amazing and the conductor brought down player uh, singers and productions from new york like when we did tales of hoffman uh it was amazing that the conductor brought the whole production from state theater to san antonio so beverly sills and normal Trago oh, wow. and people like that were uh you know singing and it was just fantastic. And I'll tell you a funny story. And that is, we would play for a week in the valley when we were in San Antonio. We'd be around Brownsville in that area, right near the Mexican border. And all of us were, you know, the orchestra was down in the valley. And what we would do, Friday night, we would have a dress rehearsal for an opera. And that was like a children's concert. And then Saturday night, we would do the performance. Well, Thursday night that week, Beverly Sills had a performance in New York. And the only way she could get to the Valley Friday night was she flew to San Antonio and Mary met her at the airport. And one of the patrons had a private plane and they flew together down to the Valley. And one of the sad things about Beverly Sills is she had a daughter that was mute. So she never heard Beverly Sills sing. So the night of the performance, <laughs> Beverly Sills saw Mary backstage just before the end of the opera. And Beverly Sills said, Mary, I haven't seen you all day. And so they were just sitting there talking. And all of a sudden, she said, oh, I just heard my cue. And she ran on stage and died of consumption. 
we were doing La Traviata. Uh, so I just, you know, thought that was beautiful. But working with Corleano was just very inspiring. It was really beautiful. And Cohen in New York, Isidore Cohen, uh, did in the Beaux Arts Trio, he would do a lot of performing all over the world. And he would look at his little book to see when my next lesson would be because he was going to be in Europe for three weeks. And he said, you know, Jim, I'm getting in from Europe Friday night and I don't have anything until Sunday night. I have a Library of Congress concert. Why don't we have a lesson Saturday morning? And he'd give me an hour and a half lesson and think that $15 was probably too high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was it was very inspiring to work with Cohen. It was really great. So you come to Battle Creek, and did you think you'd just be here for a year or two and move on? To I the next I, I really didn't know what was going to happen uh, because you know at first the way the reason the quartet was here was we were a Cedar Grant, mm -hmm. which was back in the. Uh, late 70s there was a federal grant called Comp comprehensive employment training act and if you weren't employed that is the way you got your employment and the orchestra got a grant so they could bring a quartet here and so i was like one month maybe three weeks between quartet jobs because the grant in arkansas uh was not renewed and so i had to find another quartet job and so I auditioned for it, and then two weeks later, uh, we were here in Battle Creek, and the other players in the quartet were just beautiful players. They were all, the three girls knew each other uh, in Boston, and the cellist, she's probably just retired recently, but the cellist uh, went and played in the Philadelphia Orchestra, and the first violinist played in the Detroit Symphony. So there were some good players. And, but then at the end of the year, when all of a sudden the grant was over, they had to, the way the grant read, we didn't know that at the time, they had to hire a new quartet. And so that's when we started the Suzuki program because at that point there was no Suzuki program in Battle Creek and students that wanted to be Suzuki students uh, went to Kalamazoo. And so uh, I was able to go to California and do teacher training with John Kendall. And then I started with a really, uh, you know, not many students because I didn't want to teach too many at once. And then the fall of 79, I had 18 new students, but right. Mary organized all this. And Joyce Ryan with the shopper was very generous with space. We even put the, the your article reminded me of Joyce Ryan because Joyce let us put mother tongue philosophy, which was Suzuki philosophy and how the student relates to the parent and a teacher and so forth. Those kind of things were in the shopper. How did you get steered into towards Suzuki training? So is the, you oh, thought... the way I did that. Yeah. When I was in a string quartet in Arkansas, the first violinist had just started a uh, Suzuki program in Arkansas. It was under the uh, 
umbrella of the Arkansas Symphony, and then uh, later on he branched out and uh, did his own name was Joe Miss McSpadden. He was a very close friend of mine, and he and I actually went out to California after I came to Battle Creek, uh, and uh, went and studied with John Kendall. But uh, I was teaching Suzuki what they might call Suzuki modified in the public schools when I was in Arkansas. The way the job in Arkansas was set up is we uh, were hired by the Arkansas Symphony and we did quartet concerts in the schools, but then two days of the week we taught in the schools and we didn't need uh, education degree because since we were hired by the orchestra, we were considered to be consultants and still, basically, the schools pay the orchestra a fee, and that's how we got paid. So when you first learned the Suzuki method of it, when you first heard about it, what were your thoughts? Did you think, oh, this is fabulous, or this is... Well, you know, I I was really uh, intrigued by it. There were some things I wasn't sure about, uh, because... Uh, there was I saw some things that were old fashioned and I didn't know. One thing that you heard a lot and I wondered about also was when the students were playing this all students were playing the same thing, uh, you could see that the students might be carbon copies of each other. But John Kendall always felt that even if he taught Twinkle for three hours, every student was different. And he just had to figure out what John did, which is what we learned from John, is he had a formula and he could figure out that with one student, this worked, with another student, something else worked. Mm -hmm. And actually, when I was sitting with John in California, all the teachers had private lessons with John. And even though I'd had some very good teachers before I worked with John, but he loosened up my bow arm. Like he got hold of my, I was getting ready to audition for the Grand Rapids Symphony. And uh, he just grabbed my arm and moved it. And I didn't know it could move like that. So yeah. that's how I got involved in the whole Suzuki approach. Right. And, and the other thing that's really neat about Suzuki is uh, a lot of times you have teachers that don't really want to share what they're doing with their students. But in the Suzuki method, uh, when you go to conferences and so forth, it's like old home week. And if you're not sure how you want to teach something, you call a friend of yours and say, what do you do when you have this going on? And they are more than willing to share thoughts and give you ideas. What makes the Suzuki method special or unique? Because I'm sure some people don't understand what that is. Well, I think basically what makes the Suzuki method unique is Dr. Suzuki wanted students to feel good about what they were doing. And when they got this reinforcement from the parents, uh, it wasn't just like a parent dropping a student off and half an hour later this parent picked up the student and it was up to the student to remember what they learned at the lesson. When you have the Suzuki method, the parents are taking notes and they are the at-home teacher. And it's very interesting, Dr. Suzuki did not use, like to use the word practice. 
he looked at what the students were doing at home as at-home lessons. And the parent, depending on the age of the child, the parents helped the students with listening and analyzing and so forth. But in the early stages, the parents are the teachers. That's why we do parents' class. So uh, the parents will have a hands-on uh, experience in playing the violin and what it's all about and not just doing what the teacher did as a lesson. Right, because you send the parents home with a violin to start. Right, right yeah. exactly, right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, uh, the, what the parents are doing is very basic, mm -hmm. but at least they've experienced what's going on. And then the other thing that's really neat about Suzuki is, is in teaching and also as a parent, as you know, it's much easier to say, don't do this or don't do that. And Dr. Suzuki didn't like to do that. He was always think of w ways to explain things so they were positive. And, and uh, in helping the student mature and start to uh, play practice on their own, one thing that Dr. Suzuki did was, what did you notice about your bow? Or do you think your bow is straight? Or did you notice whether your bow was straight? He would ask the students questions, and a lot of times the student would say, well, I didn't notice anything, but then they would play again, and they would start analyzing what they were doing. I mean, you've been playing for, I guess, 78 years or 79 years. Yeah, right. Do you still notice things about your bow when you play? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes... Uh, I have to stand in front of a mirror to make sure that my bow is straight because sometimes it's hard to tell. And it's optical. And a lot of times when I'm teaching students, they look at me like I'm crazy, but that's okay. Uh, I ask them if they see one bow or two bows or if they see four strings or eight strings because when they're looking at the bow so closely, they're the an optical illusion going on and if they see eight strings which i did for a long time but i never say anything about it to people because i i always did so i thought everybody did and i found out i had astigmatism mm -hmm. i'll have students look further away than the bow uh, so it's not straining their eyes uh, uh, I, I can't imagine but when you're playing with the bow and it's if depending on your where you're looking does that become difficult when you're first starting out to read the music, say, on a music stand? Cause you yeah, have... you have to. And that's why it's, it makes so much sense what Dr. Suzuki did in having the students play by ear or by road at first. Mm. Because uh, he just felt they should not be learning too many new things all at the same. It's like learning a foreign language. Mm-hmm. And so he would have them, even in box class, think about how to hold the violin and do the uh, pretend bow, bowing variations in the air. And then gradually, and even when they get the violin, to do the bow and the violin separately. And then later on, when they start reading and playing in orchestra and so forth, uh, they're just getting used to they we emphasize a peripheral vision so they can be looking at the conductor and looking at the music but if they did all that at the beginning it would just they would feel really frustrated 
And uh, the other thing that's great about what Dr. Suzuki did is when you start reading, uh, if you are learning by reading at first, you're just reading like we read uh, a sentence, one word at a time. And the thing about the students hearing the pieces before they play them is they're hearing groups of notes or phrases and they're getting to phrasing in their very early stages. I guess in a way that would be easier to learn by listening to it and by rote than exactly. picking it up on right. the... huh. And even when the students get more advanced, I have them not using the music stand completely because they that way they're much more aware of their sound. And when they start reading... I'm trying to be very careful with the relationship between the way it sounds and what the notes are in front of them. Mm -hmm. Because the visual, sometimes the visual can take over and they don't think they need to listen as much, but they still don't know what it sounds like unless they're doing a little bit of listening. But when we're listening when you're older, you're thinking about musically what's going on rather than what notes to play. So, okay, so my daughter is left-handed. Did you ever notice if left-handers have a harder time or easier time playing? You know, that's a phone call I get all the time. Mm -hmm. And should my student play backwards because they're (laughs) left-handed? A lot of times we just think the right and left hand do, uh, both do challenging things. And so uh, I have known people that have played backwards, but it was because they were in a car accident or something like that. But uh, it doesn't matter whether they're left-handed or right-handed because being left-handed, it gives you a lot of dexterity with your left hand. But uh, if they're not used to using the right hand, they just need to do some extra things with the bow. But we never have to make an adjustment if they're left-handed or right-handed. You know, I've never recalled ever seeing any type of violinist in a performance ever with the bow in the left hand. But it, it, it has happened? Do they make the violin? It has happened. Is Actually, it... it happened locally. Uh-huh. It was before I came here. There was a wonderful, no relation to me, but there was a wonderful cello teacher in Kalamazoo whose name was Herbert Butler. And Herb conducted back in the uh, early 70s, yeah, and 60s. He conducted South Bend. He taught cello in Western. He also conducted the Western Michigan Orchestra. When he was in at Eastman in Rochester, uh, he thought he was going to have to drop out of school because he uh, was in a car accident and he lost touch the touch sensation in his fingertips of his left hand. And so his teacher, fourth, he had a good teacher. I knew his teacher, everybody, said, have you ever thought about playing backwards? And uh, he didn't know that was possible. So the teacher had an old cello. He said, take this home, restring it, and play around with it. So it was like starting over again, but he was able to still keep playing. And he was a beautiful musician. And I never knew this other person, but on the first stand in Kalamazoo, there were two players, it was Herb and a friend of his. They both played backwards. <laughs> and a friend of mine told me that when Duke Ellington was here, he 
they were doing a rehearsal and he looked over at the cello section and he just did a double take. He said, what is it about Kalamazoo? Is it the water? <laughs> because they'd never seen people play backwards oh, before. So you're working with about 15 students now? You said you're semi-retired. Yeah, 15 to 20. Yeah, and I've slowed down quite a bit. But you must still love it, right? You're... Oh, yeah. It's fun. And uh, I was really having a lot of fun. on. And when it was interesting, an older person came up to me after the performance was over. And <laughs> one person said, Jim, you look just like you looked 20 years ago. <laughs> And another person said, I could not believe you were standing for the whole program. But one thing that made me feel really good about the program, I was, I've been going to uh, where we did the program, Church of Resurrection, and uh, I've been doing a lot of playing there. In fact, I played a couple of solos at church this past Sunday. But, and one of the older parishioners said to me, you know, Jim, one thing I noticed when the program was going on last Sunday, is even the little kids that weren't playing thought Jim Butler was too much. <laughs> <laughs> so that made me feel, and she, and she said, that's a real tribute. And that saying that, and this same person sent me a card thanking me for the program and said, thank you for sharing. So that, you know, and and also the what you did with the article in the shopper was very nice. Yeah. It was good. Well, thank you. No, it was wonderful. I felt, you know, I was telling Nina that I felt um, it was really nice to hear all this music because I hadn't heard it in so long. But kind of sad because it makes me realize that, you know, the years go by quickly and she's not eight, oh, yeah. eight years old anymore. True. Yeah, maybe I, I called her up and I said, hey, do we still have a, another violin here somewhere? Maybe I was inspired <laughs> to, to practice or try and play something. And I think I had sold um, one of her violins to a student right. who was looking to get started in the fifth grade or sixth grade here in Marshall. Oh, right, yeah. And I said, well, it's But just Nina cool. was always a good player. Yeah, she was a very she natural was. player. Do you play when you're just home, hanging out? Oh, yeah. I have to stay in shape. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I when I'm not teaching a lot, uh, I practice uh, one to two hours a day just to stay in. I like to tell people that when I get up in the morning and I'm not teaching right away, I have to convert my sticks into fingers. So, yeah, it's just, it's a constant thing. You know, John Kendall said something to a few of us teachers a few years ago. Uh, he just hated it when patrons would, when uh, parents would call him Dr. Kendall, even though he had a doctorate. And he would say, she would say, Dr. Kendall, how long did it take for you to learn how to do vibrato? And he said he didn't know how to answer the question because he thought he was still working on it. You know, so it's just, uh, it's... Uh, I, a lot of times I'll tell students that, you know, it's not like other things that you're learning. You just have to, you know, like sports and so forth, you have to stay in shape. Yeah, because I imagine if you don't play yeah. for a few days, that then feels weird. And then, I mean, the fingers, yeah. really? Your fingers, no. really? A few years ago, Zach, it was just before the pandemic, Zachary played part of the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto with the Battle Creek Symphony. 
and they had a little interview with him just before the concert. And they were asking about his practice and that kind of thing. And he said, you know, two or three years ago, I took a week off. And when I picked up my fiddle again, it was a mess. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, he was talking about how when he was working, uh, he was in school out in California. And even between classes, he would just try to play as much as he could so he could not only stay in shape, but so he could improve. I wanted to ask you about your car, the Orange Beetle. How long have yes. you had it? How long have you had it? Because that's your trademark. Isn't it? I've had it, yeah, since 93. Okay. And what year is that But I've model? actually driven it to Mississippi and back. Oh. What what year was the car made, the model year? It's a 74. Okay, because that's near the end, right? Didn't they stop building them around? Yeah, they, they were making a few cars after that uh, in Mexico. But the thing about my car was one of the last cars that they were uh, had a carburetor in. Mm -hmm. And then after that, they started doing fuel injection. All right. But there was a lot of experimentation. And then right after the bug uh, was the rabbit. Mm -hmm. But then uh, they started in, in Mexico, started making a more modern old beetle. Uh, that you didn't have to be so careful with the valves and that kind of thing. Uh, and they actually were making uh, Beatles in Mexico until the late 90s. Is your model an automatic or a manual? It's manual. Okay. I'm jealous. But uh, when I got it, <laughs> it was um, automatic, uh, but it didn't have a motor. Oh. And so I had another 74 bug that was rusting out. So we had to, we put the motor, uh, mechanic did it for me, but he put the motor, took the motor out of the car I was driving and put it into the car I bought. Mm -hmm. And then he had to do things with the flywheel because it was going from uh, automatic to stick. So I just wanted to go wrap things up and go back to the birthday reunion play-in that you had uh, on May 7th um, and playing with your daughter, Catherine, um, the duet you did. Was that a surprise? Yes. It was, it was I didn't know a thing about it. Okay. <laughs> and Catherine, uh, bless her heart, she's been having health problems, but she and the day before, Beth DeWeese uh, has been very nice and been taking her to uh, the hospital in Jackson, and she's been uh, getting some medicine and so forth. But uh, so she didn't feel very good Saturday, but she felt really great Sunday. But about evidently 10 days or two weeks before May 7th, she thought, oh, it would be really neat to play a duet with dad, but I don't want to tell him about it. I want to surprise him. But and so. There were people in the audience that knew she was going to play with me, but I didn't. And you'd played that with her before, right? The humor. Yes, right, and uh, brought back really good memories. I'm sure. I'm sure. That actually, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> Humoresque. Uh, and then what she had to say um, afterwards—that it was really a, a team operation with you and Mary, and yeah, up I late think at night what, and things like what, that. Yeah, uh, I think what Catherine said about Mary. 
was fantastic. And uh, a lot of us feel that if Mary had not organized the program the way she did, uh, it wouldn't have gotten off the ground like it did because she knew a lot about arts administration. She knew the articles to put in the shopper and she knew who to call to get things going. And uh, she just had things very organized. It was really neat. Mm -hmm. So I'm, a lot of Suzuki teacher friends of mine said, I wish I had Mary. Because <laughs> Mary really organized the thing so well. It was yeah. beautiful. Well, good. Well, it was a wonderful afternoon. And um, you said it brought back memories. And it brought back memories for me. And I'm sure for all the other... Um, former students and current students and parents of students, because I was talking to a gentleman who was seated, seated behind me, uh, and I, his last name escaped me, Yeah, John. it was John Lisiago. Yes, and he was telling me, you know, he seemed so excited to be there. And I guess you guys go, you, you taught all three of his kids. and uh, Right. Yeah, so, yeah. So I, yeah, John's always been very supportive. And I want to say thank you, because it was a wonderful experience for my my daughter to play all those years and and uh i'm sure um you've you've done that with hundreds if not a thousand students and uh, it's good that you're still doing it because what else are you going to do right yeah right <laughs> yeah all right well don't know when to stop but it's it, yeah it's it just it's good that you are able to help the students feel good about what they're doing and so the whole Suzuki philosophy is just very positive. My thanks to Jim for joining me, and thanks for listening. And until next time, may the good news be yours. <laughs>